Welcome to the second episode of Coronavirus The Truth with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. We are also the hosts of the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, in your career as a physician and educator at Stanford University and CEO at Kaiser Permanente, you've helped lead our country through epidemics like SARS, MERS, swine flu, and even Ebola. We began this podcast because so many people had reached out to you for honest, fact-based information about the current COVID-19 pandemic. In this episode, we're going to address some very difficult but important facts concerning the coronavirus and the future of the disease. Before we do, Robbie, a lot of news and information has emerged since our first episode. Can you start us off with some of the most recent updates? Jeremy, it's remarkable to me that we are one week, seven days since the last episode And how much is different now than it was then? People have come to understand the importance of social distancing. You had the CDC talking about 50 people, the President of the United States talking about 10, the Chancellor of Germany talking about two. We are looking at a prolonged period during which we're going to see social distancing and all of the consequences of that. And I think it's starting to penetrate people's perception when they realize that this is not going to be a short-term two-week hiatus. This is going to be a major shift in our society, in our social interactions, and in our financial world. The second is how many cities have put in place shelter in place orders and the entire state of California, as well as some other states moving in that same direction. The problems that we've seen so far are going, and by that I do not necessarily even mean just the infectious ones, but the societal ones, the impact on jobs, the impact on people's psychology. That is going to grow worse every week. And finally, we're seeing now what has been talked about for a while, that the EDs, the hospitals, and the, uh, and, and the ICUs are getting overwhelmed. We're seeing reports of inadequate amount of protective gear. We're seeing increasing numbers of healthcare professionals doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists providing who provide the care getting sick. And we're now seeing the first set of deaths happening around the globe amongst healthcare professionals. I think that that problem is going to grow. The city of New York is on the verge of tipping over with more cases than they have the capacity to take care of. And one last piece I want to mention that I saw on today's paper. In California, in places like San Francisco, you have providers of care without adequate protection, not because they don't want to provide it, but because they can't access it. It simply does not exist. And according to the report I saw today, 
the University of California in Davis, an hour away on Highway 80, is continuing to do not just elective procedures, cosmetic surgery. We have a major discontent in our nation, and I do have some concerns, as we discussed last week, that this will not be just a pandemic of viral disease, but we're going to see a lot of social issues, along with the financial and other educational issues that have already come to the fore. And then, of course, we have the data on the infection and mortality rates. Uh, The numbers I saw today for the death rates in the United States was 458. I don't remember exactly what it was last week, but it was something like 70 or 80 with 35,000 proven cases. I want listeners to understand both of those numbers. The first aspect on the mortality is that the people who are dying now are the ones who came in contact with the virus four weeks ago. What we know is that viruses like this have a doubling rate. And for COVID-19, it's about two and a half to three days. What we can be certain of, and listeners have to understand, is that over the next two weeks, remember, we didn't put in place social distancing until about 10 days ago. You will see that number going up, not by a factor of two, that's one doubling, four, eight, at least 16 to 32 times. And it will not tell us anything about what we're doing today. And similarly, the data says that the 35,000 patients is probably no more than a fifth or a tenth of the actual numbers. We are so far behind in understanding where our nation is, which is what's going to make it difficult to make the right decisions going forward. From my understanding, uh, our growth curve is starting to look worse than even Iran and Italy. Uh, You recently wrote a powerful article for Forbes titled Seven Dangerous Myths About the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic. If we do all the things you recommended in your article, can we prevent any more deaths in the near future? In the last episode, we talked about the three ways that viruses get stopped. The best way is vaccine. And in the article you're talking about, the Forbes article, The Seven Myths About COVID-19, I mentioned the movie Contagion. Contagion was actually a very good movie with a lot of information relevant to today. But at the end, everyone is saved by the development of a vaccine in a matter of weeks. That's not going to happen for a full year. The second way it happens is through containment. This is what they're doing in Hong Kong and Singapore. When a patient is identified, that individual and the recent contacts are all quarantined and the disease is limited. You can think about it putting a corral around the disease. The failures to do adequate testing in late January and early February, when we could have done it, because we had the data out of China. We had the sequencing of the RNA. When we didn't do it back then, we allowed the number of cases to grow so high that the pandemic has now spread. As we said to 150 or 300,000 people, you can't screen that many and find their contacts and contain the disease anymore. 
So now we're down to two factors, Jeremy. And I hate to say it this way because it's so tragic, but there's two factors. There's the deaths from the disease itself and the deaths from the inability to provide the medical care. And I want to put two pieces in place there, Jeremy. One to the people who have the disease and one to people who have other things, heart attacks and strokes, who can't get care because of the numbers of people who will be getting care for COVID-19. This is where we are right now. The idea about doing social distancing is to flatten the curve so that the demand for hospital beds, for ICU beds, for physicians, for nurses does not exceed our capability of providing it. That's what's happening in Italy today. You have two patients needing a respirator, both of whom could get better if they had got the respirator and only one respirator. That is what we're trying to avoid, and that is not an impossible situation, and those deaths would be preventable, avoidable, and they will be obviously extremely tragic. And yet at the same time, what we're also seeing as a consequence of that is the disease will prolong itself and it's possible that we'll see other deaths as a consequence of the things that we're doing. I think what we need to do to figure out the best path forward is to have data, data through testing of individuals who may be having the disease so we can self-quarantine them, and data on really what is going on in the transmissibility, in the immunity, and we simply despite the conversation, despite what we said last week, there's not enough testing ability in the United States today for us to really know what's going on. And as you asked, to be able to therefore make the right decisions about how best to prevent mortality in the United States. Unfortunately, this sounds terrifying. Um, what advice do you have for people that might be panicking now? I know I woke up a couple of days ago with a sore throat that won't go away. And to be blunt, it's freaking me out a little bit. The idea of people freaking out is becoming more real every single day. And I'll go back to what I said last week. Fear is not a good answer. What we have to do is figure out how to get the facts, figure out what we can control, what we can't control, and what we have yet to know. And separating all those pieces is what is necessary. Clear, honest, open communication. Let me try to give it to you. In terms of yourself, no matter what, you should be doing social distancing. The reason to do it is there's no good way to know who has the virus and may give it to you? We have evidence that says people may not even know they have the virus and they can transmit it to someone else. You may have read in the media that there's some data that says some individuals only have a change in smell or taste or a loss of the ability to smell and taste. And that's their only symptom. The only way to find out is to test them. That's what you need, Jeremy. I believe you need a test, and I'll warn you right now, you're going to have a lot of trouble getting one because the number of testing kits available in the United States today is inadequate. Other nations like South Korea jumped on the problem, 
in late January, early February. They're now testing large percentage of their population. The United States, unfortunately, remains very far behind. So now you have an impossible situation, Jeremy. You might have COVID-19, but the symptoms are exactly the same as patients who have the flu, in fact, even the common cold. You may remember from last week, we said there are seven kinds of coronaviruses, four are common cold, one's MERS, one's SARS, and one's COVID-19. And we can't separate the early symptoms from each of these different diseases. So what do you do? And if you interact with people, particularly your own family, when you have the disease, the likelihood is very high that one, two, or three of them, depending upon how many live in the house with you, will come down with the virus, and then they'll pass it on and again and again. So again, I go back to what is it that we need to do? General precautions, social distancing, hand washing, avoidance of uh, coughing in our hand and then touching our nose. And then number two, early detection, extensive testing, self-quarantine. Some municipalities still haven't closed down restaurants or public spaces. Uh, in Chicago, the mayor told constituents that public schools will reopen April 21st um, after less than a one-month closure. Uh, similar timelines around the country we've heard. Um, how realistic is it that people will be able to safely return to work and school and, and life as usual in, in a month or so? You're asking two questions. One is going to be about the three stages, which is really three stages of understanding. And one is going to be about what's likely to happen. Let me take the second one first. Schools will not open in the middle of April. They will open probably in September. Can't even be certain about that because we don't know what's going to happen to this virus as the temperature changes and it potentially mutates. It will, there is no way we can open the schools in April because the reasons we shut them are not going to be any different in April. The percentage of the population that has coronavirus or has experienced it will still be relatively small. And the risk of spreading it and exceeding the ability of the hospitals, whether in Chicago or New York or Los Angeles or Boston, will be in place. And that time frame will invariably be extended. Every place that I've been lately has had a ban in place, both on the East Coast and the West Coast, for restaurants and for other places of gathering. What's concerning is that a lot of people don't pay attention to it. We're seeing that in a survey that came out today that a third of college students are still partying as though the COVID virus is not a problem. It is a problem. We're seeing a growing percentage of cases hospitalized patients in those under the age of 50. There are deaths that are now being reported in patients who are in their 20s and 30s. The good news is we're not seeing it in very young children. We're not seeing the mortality in very young children. But the people who are seeing themselves as relatively safe, are going to discover that, first of all, they're not. It's not a great disease to have, even if you recover from it. Whenever we see a new virus, our bodies have to go into overdrive in order to be able to develop the necessary immunity, and that's not fun most of the time. And as we're learning, 
the risk of even getting sicker despite not having chronic disease and being relatively younger is great. So I'm surprised that all of the major cities have not moved forward to try to flatten the curve by social distancing. And that requires that we close the places that have gatherings like the restaurants and the bars. The three stages is three ways that we come to understand what is going on. Stage one, where we are now, all we really can depend upon is the mortality rates. We do a good job when someone comes into the hospital of identifying whether they have COVID-19. And when they die, we include that in the coding. And so we have a relatively good sense of how many people are dying today from COVID-19. As we mentioned earlier, though, this is what happened a month ago. We're not seeing any data relative to mortality about what's happening now, about whether our interventions are having an impact, about anything that we can calculate related to what is going to happen a month from now. But as we said, what we're going to see is between now and two weeks from now, that mortality to keep going up and no one should be surprised whether it goes up with four doublings, which would be 16 times more, or five doublings, 32 times more, that mortality will go much higher. Listeners should understand it and not panic as a result. It is inevitable when a month ago we did not make any changes. That's stage one. Stage two is when we start to understand how frequently people have this disease. As we've noted today, the official numbers are something like 35,000. That's only because we haven't tested enough people. The data says it's at least five to 10 times greater. Could be more than that. The good part about it being more than that is going to be, therefore, fewer people are likely to die when they get the disease. The bad part is there's more opportunity to catch the disease from someone as there's more people having the virus. That's stage two, which we need to get into by doing the testing that will become, that is so essential for us to understand what's happening in the country right now and to be able to understand in what areas there's going to be, there's not only an outbreak today, but there will be an even greater outbreak in the future because we can watch those curves change and see the spread that's happening both in cities and in subparts of the city, and do the necessary, to whatever extent we can, health interventions to prevent spread among people through local quarantine. And some of that has actually already happened in the New Rochelle area of New York City, as an example. But stage three is when we start to come to grips with the real issues that are sitting in play when it comes to a virus for which we don't have a vaccine and for which containment is not possible. And now what we're talking about is how long is it going to last? And my answer is far longer than most people realize. And the reason for that is that in flattening the curve, we slow down the immunity that people are going to get 
don't flatten the curve, we increase the mortality, the number of people who will die, not just from the disease, but from insufficient hospital and physician and respirator capability. We are sitting in this very uncertain matrix on one aspect, on one axis being the length and on one being the number of deaths. And as I say, I want to go back to there's a mortality from the disease itself and there's a mortality from failing to be able to do the things that could save a life, but because the healthcare system is overwhelmed, we simply can't do that. We need to get to phase three, stage three, where people come to a real grasp about what is happening. I'm shocked every time someone looks at the numbers and says, oh my gosh, there are more people with the disease or more people dying from the disease. That is 100% definite because of the biology and the mathematics. Increasingly, I'm telling people about lily ponds and that how if you have a pond with one lily, these little flat green things with a little flower on it, and every day one lily doubles, becomes two. And over 50 days, the lily pond's going to become 100% covered. And I ask people at day 46, four days before you're going to see 100% coverage of the lily pond, what percent is covered? The answer is 6%. Four days before it's all going to be covered. In fact, the day before, the 49th day, half of it is still empty. That's the exponential growth that our nation has not yet fully accepted and understood. Increasingly, I'm hearing people talk about this being a wartime, the same mentality that's necessary for the conflicts that happened, the world wars that used to happen over four years. This is more analogous now to the psychology of war than it is to most of what we assume to be modern medicine. Uh, why are public officials so much more optimistic than you with their time frames? It's the nature of politics. It's easier to tell people something they want to hear then tell them the truth. I think when it comes to an epidemic of this nature, that's very dangerous, but it's easier for them to think they're going to reopen the schools in Chicago next month, and all we've got to do is figure out how to avoid developing this infection over the next month, and then a month from now, it'll be another month, and then the summer will have come, and I think in the minds of politicians, it's the better way to keep the electorate, the constituencies that support them, satisfied, and to have them believe that their elected officials are doing all the things that are possible. As I said before, that may work in certain circumstances where we have a lot of control. The economy is a good example where the opportunity exists if a specific financial piece, like the banking crisis, terrible recession, but there are ways to address it with fiscal policy. When you start talking about a virus and its biology, there is no way to address it in the usual political way. I'll go back to what I said. It requires openness, honesty, transparency, and I don't think that's what's happening. 
And your example of why do politicians promise things that are unlikely because they think politically it will be to their advantage. I think actually they're going to find exactly the opposite. Uh, kind of on that note, what do you make of President Trump's uh, all caps tweet from last night? Um, we cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself. At the end of the 15 day period, we will make a decision as to which way we want to go. I've I've obviously not spoken with uh, the president. He's not sought my advice. And so I have to be coming up with suppositions. And my supposition for the listeners, and please just take it as a possibility, hypothesis, is that he's grappling right now with the realities of the loss of life from an epidemic that overwhelms the hospitals against the loss of life that will happen across time if people are unable to return back to their more normal type activities, if they lose their jobs, if the financial world collapses around them, if they can't buy the food, if they can't buy the medicines that they need, And it's unclear whether Congress will take the actions that are going to be necessary. Long-term actions with major consequences in order to avoid the second half of the problems. I suspect that he's grappling finally with the reality of what is going on right now with this virus and the very, very difficult choices that need to be made. I would hope he's not promising that two weeks from now, this is going to end because it won't, no matter what happens. But what I'm hearing, and I did not see the tweet, but from what you said, is that the president is grappling with how fast to let the infection, I don't mean him personally, but the elected officials in this country, how fast to allow that to happen, which as we've noted, will have terrible human consequences with deaths that were preventable occurring. And I suspect in his mind, he's looking at another possibility, which is that no matter what Congress is able to do or does, that we could see an equal or greater number of people suffering and potentially dying if this shutdown continues for as long as the mathematics and the biology says that it will. President Trump also mentioned several drugs that sound promising, um, and yet scientists are skeptical. What should people know about the possibility of medication to treat coronavirus? In the last episode, I talked about when people say they don't know, that means they don't know. Don't assume that it means yes. Don't assume that it means no. Don't assume that it's worse or that it's better. At least that's what should happen, particularly as various scientists use that phrase. That's the best way to describe what's going on. Some of these medications, chloroquine is a really good example. There was a very small anecdotal study coming out of France and another small study coming out of China that said that maybe it works. We don't have the data yet. There's some what's called 
antiviral agents that have shown some promise in other areas, they could work. In the Spanish flu of 100 years ago, they took plasma serum from patients who recovered, and that was helpful. These are all possibilities. I don't think that anyone should assume that they are likely. I think they're being tested right now. I hope they work. But again, I would caution against an elected official telling anyone that they feel good that it will happen unless they have information that they're not disclosing from good scientific research. And I hope they do. But if again, if I had to take my best guess, I think it's hope above reality. When you go to the casino, you may have a good feeling about the roulette wheel. But if you put your money down long enough, you're going to lose more times than not. I think we have to wait for the scientific studies to happen and for these treatments to either be proven and then widely distributed as quickly as possible or found to not add much value. And at this point, we do not know. Beyond our current reality, is there any good news or rays of hope you see coming from this crisis? We have to get through this crisis. And I don't want any listener to be thinking that we should look at the positives long-term if in any way it diminishes the tragedy that's happening short-term. But I think, yes, there are. One major part to me was an announcement by Medicare, Medicaid, the CMS, that they would begin to allow doctors and patients to communicate using video, the video on their phones. I've been a proponent for a long time. I wrote in the book, Mistreated, why we think we're getting good healthcare, why we're usually wrong, about how video would replace 30% of what we do in the doctor's office today. I think that it should to give care that's quicker, higher quality, and lower cost to patients and far more convenient. I think that once people experience how easy it is to get their questions answered, how easy it is to get doctors' advice about whether they should get tested, about whether they need to come to the hospital, about how to take care of their medical problems, they're going to demand it. I was speaking to one of the leaders in Kaiser Permanente in Northern California. They're now doing over 5,000 video visits every single day. I think this will be a game changer in healthcare. There's a second part of positive, which is the impact on the environment. We saw this in China. The air pollution went down by 20% as a result of what, what happened in Wuhan. Venice is seeing clear water and return of fish. I think we can start to see and understand what we've done to the, to the climate, to the environment around us with the healthcare consequences that it has for patients, particularly those who have lung disease or asthma. I'm hoping that we're going to get a new perspective about the flu. We talked last time about the fact that 30 million Americans get the flu every year and somewhere around 40,000 of them die by the way, including 159 children this year, there is an effective vaccine. 
and probably no more than 60%. Some have estimated as low as 40% of people have taken that vaccine. I'm hoping that vaccine will become something that everyone does once we have a vaccine that addresses the coronavirus. And finally, I think that we're learning that we need to have future preparation. There's an expression out of a book called The Black Swan Events. This is not a black swan event. It was not uncertain when it was going to happen, but there was no question that it would happen. And you would think that we would have stockpiled the protective gear that doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists need. You would think that we would have the laboratories ready to develop the vaccine, to create the kits as quickly as possible. I'm hoping this will be a wake-up call. And next time, when we see an even more lethal virus, that we will not get fooled. I think there is much good that could come long-term, but we should in no way get distracted from the crisis and the tragedies that are happening today. In fact, I'd like to ask you, Jeremy, we hear a lot about what's happening in major hubs, as you said, like Chicago, New York, San Francisco. You live in Iowa. What has changed in your area over the past week? What's the mood in middle America today? As the number of cases have gone up in my area, it's I would say it's become increasingly eerie. Um, it seems more and more like a ghost town. Uh, everyone I know is talking about whatever. what if they never see their parents, grandparents, or friends again. Uh, people are losing their jobs and are desperate to know when this will end. Uh, people are worried about an increase in crime. Guns and ammo have been flying off the shelf as people want increased protection. Uh, some people just want someone to blame, whether it be a politician or who knows what. Other people just want to come together. Uh, I would say, honestly, it's the most surreal thing I've ever experienced in my entire life. I've never seen people this scared, and not just of the disease, um, but of the economy. Um, that being said, there are some rays of hope in even my community. Uh, people are sewing masks for local hospitals, and uh, even in the building my office is based out of, it's also home to a 3D printing company called Proto Studios, and they're printing uh, PPE-related equipment for the University of Iowa Hospital as fast as they can. Robbie, before we go, we've invited listeners to send us some of their questions and concerns. Can you write us an update on some of those? We've received quite a number of questions and I'd encourage the listeners to send more in if they have them. Most of them have been about the transmissibility of the disease. They've worried that it could come in the food that they're having delivered to their house. So far, there's no evidence that the food will transmit it. They worry that it could come off of a piece of fruit that they buy in the store. And I think good hygiene is helpful. They worry that it could come off the soles of people's shoes. There's little evidence the virus does not do well in terms of a dirty environment. They've asked questions about the masks and being able to separate the droplet masks, the usual masks that people wear from these N95 special masks used by healthcare professionals that are necessary for aerosol. They've asked a lot of questions and we've tried to give them as many answers as possible. We'll continue to do so in future shows. I really want to express my gratitude to the caregivers across the United States 
for the tremendous work that they're doing and for our listeners for being able to learn the truth through this podcast and communicate it broadly to their friends, family, and colleagues. I would like to second that and also say thank you to everyone who is on the front lines right now. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and is also Coronavirus, the truth on all podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts. If you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, share it with your friends and family. To submit a question, comment, or anything to the hosts, uh, please visit our website and fill out a contact form or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening.